going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has created, has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised as the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of God. Thank you, brother. Thanks. It's not hard to sense the weightiness this morning. Uh, we realize that as we've walked through First Peter, um, things have been kind of rolling forward a bit, giving us an indication of who we are in our identity, right? That we're, we're a kingdom of priests, and there's this reality of what God has done in our identity in Him. And then chapter 2 and chapter 3 have moved us and moved us further to this place of realization that, that what we're called to is to, to live differently. And it's not, a, it's not a behavioral modification. It's a sense in which as the transforming work of the Holy Spirit is ignited in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ, 
things begin to grow and be generated that represent the work of God in us. And so this isn't uh, a series of sermons about how to live differently by being a better person or by uh, uh, trying to be nicer or be kind. Or This is about understanding what you can expect as the transforming work of Christ does its work inside of us. These are the things that come out as Jesus does his renovation project inside of our hearts. And so there's this internal that moves to external as we understand the, the potency of grace. That grace is not just a moment in time that we experience when we've placed our faith in Christ and, and salvation. We've experienced an unmerited gift and, and favor from God. This is grace, sustaining grace that transforms human hearts on a daily basis, moving us towards more intimacy with Christ, and at the same time expressing itself where we're looking as though there's a work being done inside of us. Things are happening inside that are expressing themselves from the outside. But now we move into chapter 4, and as Ken so eloquently read for us this morning... We now move kind of to a deeper level. So Jared and I, as we've walked through this sermon, we wanted to to put the pattern in your mind of what it looks like to live differently. And that's certainly the case as we continue on, but but now it moves into an even more difficult part in the context of our hearts. It's how to suffer differently. Every one of us, in innumerable and varied ways, have experienced some sense of suffering. Some trial that has captured our attention. I know that for many of us, we are right there, boxed in by suffering and darkness. We don't see much light. We, we see the difficulty in the day-to-day grind of the pain with the uncertainty of, of what might change or what might not change. It's hard to even capture and understand what life is going to look like or how we should be experiencing the grace that Christ promised in the midst of just innumerable and incalculable suffering. You see if I can enter into this text in an in a illustrative way. Many of us are uh, prone to waking up in the middle of the night for various reasons. You have young kids and they start crying. And the husband uh, elbows the wife or the wife elbows the husband as it's your turn to get up. Or maybe you just need a drink of water. Or for people 45 and above like myself, maybe we need to make a visit to the restroom in the middle of the night. All of those things are things that tend to, to wake us up in the middle of the night. And when you wake up, somewhat disoriented because the darkness surrounds you, but in an interesting and amazing and uh, unique way, God has created us as, as human beings to be able to adjust to that darkness. And that's what happens, right? Our, our eyes fix, they dilate, and they, they, uh, they, they, whatever, what's the other word, dilate and whatever, but they, they get bigger and they get smaller. How about we just go simple here this morning? And, and so we were able to, to then adjust. And we can't see everything clearly, but we can see enough to get by. This is a unique aspect of how God has created us as humans, that we can adjust to darkness. It's a great thing physically. Terrible thing spiritually. And yet we do it all the time. There's a sense in which as, as life begins to consume and the darkness begins to intrude, we are easily given to adjusting to that darkness. 
We learn how to get by. And although we don't see everything clearly, we, we move into survival mode where we're just thinking, if this just ends or when this is over, life will be better. First Peter 4 is moving us to realize that spiritually adjusting to the darkness is dangerous. It's the worst thing. That we could do. Although it's what our flesh defaults to, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wants us to rest on the power and the reliability of grace that we can experience here and now so that the darkness doesn't determine what we do, who we are, how we think, and what we say. But the light of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace that's alive inside of our hearts, gives us the vantage point so that we don't have to be consumed by darkness because we've already been consumed by light. We've already been given a sense of what Jesus has for us. And so there's these gentle reminders of how grace works itself out in the most traumatic, tremendous, and difficult of sufferings that many of us have experienced or are experiencing. How to suffer differently is where Peter's moving us in this text. I want to caution us, though, to the realization that this isn't about, well, if I just do these things well and I behave accurately, then all of a sudden my suffering will end. What the the Holy Spirit, the inspired Word of God, is giving us this morning is understanding how to live and how to suffer with Jesus in mind. And so, if you will, look at 1 Peter chapter 4. He starts off right at the beginning. He says in in the first two verses, something that's very significant that begins to set the framework for for what it means to suffer differently. Here's what he says. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. This is battle imagery that he's giving us to understand what it looks like to suit up. So the word arm, when used to describe what they're doing for a horse, is to to harness the horse and put the bit in his mouth so that they're ready for battle. When you're thinking about a soldier, it means you're putting on all of your armor in preparation for going to war. So this is about a reality of the fact that since Christ has suffered, is what Peter tells us, he then moves us to a place of saying, here's how you begin to arm yourselves, here's how we arm ourselves for the battle that's raging in front of us. So this is warrior image, this is, this is, this is battle plan, this is, this is being a fighter in the midst of theater where chaos is around every single person. Arm yourselves. With what? I mean, what's our, what's, our, what's our armor? What are the things that we're putting on? And it's interesting that he gives us just one thing. It's like this sort of suit of armor that just comes on and all of it is included in these next few words. What does he say? He says, arm yourself with really trying hard, mustering up courage, be brave, fight strong, work hard and do the best you can. And God, none of that. Here's what he says. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So here's how he begins to set a a very broad framework for how we begin to understand suffering. If we're going to learn how to suffer differently, we have to learn how to think differently. That there's some level of paradigm shift that begins to take place. That, that often the reason why suffering begins to capture our attention is because it speaks to us things that are happening that are untrue. Suffering distorts reality. Now, let me be careful. I'm not saying that the suffering that you and I are going through or have been through isn't real. That's not what I'm saying at all. It is absolutely significant and real and for many of us life-altering. What I'm saying is that as we look at that suffering and see the impact that it's having, the reasons for the suffering, the challenges for the suffering are lying to us about what's actually taking place. You've done it and I've done it ad nauseum. We've said to ourselves, I'm suffering. I'm I'm dealing with this significant thing. I have cancer. I've lost a loved one because God is punishing me. Correct? We've all felt that weight. And it's because there's this sense in which that suffering is telling us things about what's happening that aren't accurate. They're distorting the truth and displacing the grace that Christ has given us. And so he tells us to think differently. He tells us to think like Christ thought when Christ went through incalculable suffering. So that lends itself to the question, okay, fair enough, how did Christ think? Jared preached the message on that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. If you want to just flip over, if you have your little book, let me just read it for you. Because here's something that's so significant, because what ends up happening in the midst of suffering is what ends up growing. Anger, bitterness, frustration, some level of the fact that injustice is occurring and I can do nothing about it and I've got to take things into my own hands and do whatever I can do. Here's what he says in verse 23. So he gives us 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So we're getting this purity and this righteousness of Christ that's displayed in how Jesus suffered. And then look what happens. This is how he's telling us to think. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Look how Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begins to help us understand how we think. It starts with God and ends with man. It doesn't start with man and end with God. Here's what Peter says in the midst of how Jesus suffered. And you're looking at that that crucifixion, the the death of the God-man, this righteous one on the cross for the sake of a sin-infested world. He didn't revile. He didn't threaten. But he entrusted, gave himself, surrendered himself to the God who judges justly. Last week, we said that evil has a shelf life. And so what we're starting with in understanding the nature and character of God is that eternally there will be no such thing as injustice. The God of the universe 
is fair, just, and equitable. Not because he wants to be, but that's part of his character. That's how he operates in the world, that, that sin and evil has a shelf life. It has an expiration date. And so the moment in time in which we are experiencing untold amounts of suffering... Peter moves these believers to the place of looking what Jesus was fixated on as he was going through betrayal, brokenness, crucifixion, unbelievable amounts of pain, losing his life based on suffocation, being put in a tomb. All of these things were lending themselves to the reality that the reason why Christ was able to endure the most extreme amounts of suffering. It's because he knew the tender, just hands of his Father. And that evil and suffering and pain and cancer and depression and betrayal are real things that we experience in this moment. But this moment for believers does not define the reality of our existence. The tender hands of the just father does. Amen? There is something so weighty as we think about thinking differently that we come to the realization that what, what Jesus is moving us towards through these truths in 1 Peter is that the grace that is offered to us through faith in Jesus Christ is not only more significant and more real, but it's ultimately the only thing that's reliable to give us the truth of what we're experiencing. See, grace never minimizes the pain that you and I walk through. Grace never minimizes the grief. Grace never puts us in the place where it tells us you should just be doing better. Get your act together, would you? Those aren't the words of grace. Those are the words of the evil one distorting our suffering and making it about us and limiting the power of God in the midst of it, right? And so what grace communicates to us is that I'm here, I'm close, I've got this. I am working in innumerable ways that you cannot see and the potency of my grace is so much greater than the pain of your suffering. So it's not as though Jesus is just pushing the the, the pain away, but he's moving us in the midst of our pain towards himself. And so he says in verse 2, so as to live the rest of time in the flesh with no longer of human passions, but based on the will of God. You, You see how the thinking changes? The framework is different. Our end goal is not fleshly outcomes of desiring suffering to cease. Our outcome, our longing, our hunger, it's the will of God. We want God to do what only God can do. And we know that what God can do isn't dependent upon us. We just want to be a part of being drawn into what that will is. And all we want to see is the will of God realized in our lifetime. It's like the prayer of Habakkuk when he's sitting there and complaining to God about how Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good. And he's frustrated by the whole experience. Then he says, the end of chapter 2, I'm going to stand. And I'm going to wait. And I'm going to listen for God to answer my complaint. 
And then even at the end of Job, someone who knows about suffering, in the end of Job chapter 42, he says, look, in the midst of everything that I was frustrated about, God isn't disciplining him because he's angry with God or frustrated about how things are happening. But he begins to display his character in innumerable ways and Job begins to understand the fullness of God's picture. And what does he say? He says, I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's Job's outcome of his incalculable suffering. Is In the midst of the suffering, I didn't see the bigness of God. But thankfully, I have a God who's patient and enduring and loving me in such an incredible way that he's leading me from what I see in the dark to what I can see in the light. And what that's ultimately going to be is the vastness of God's character and the unbelievable amount of his grace dispensed on people that he loves is so much more than we're experiencing in the middle of suffering. So it begins to change the way that we think in the context of those things. So Lord, I'd like to suggest to you as he's moving on, what ends up happening in the midst of suffering is it tends to generate attitudes and actions that are leading us away from God. So sinful habits and behaviors that we can normally keep in the back when we're not really having a difficult time, seem to always come up to end of the forefront. Somebody who struggles with anger can put it aside when things are going well, right? But when stress hits, life is hard. Boy, does that anger monster come out in a regular way. It's true for all of us. Our signature sins tend to show up more conducive, more significantly when we're suffering and things are really hard. So Peter moves on to tell us about the reality of why that's the case. There's a book that I'm reading, probably not the lightest reading material, but it's a book called Addictions. It's written by Ed Welsh. And he describes sin as disordered worship. Peter's going to tap into that very same reality. Because what we worship, we tend to look like and behave like. And so what ends up happening in the midst of suffering and these saints who were struggling with life and death issues begin to realize that what's ending up coming out are these areas of sinful attitudes and actions because ultimately their trust is in the outcomes around them, not in the God within them. And so here's what he says in verse 3. For the time in the past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. Living sensually, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will um, give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so what he tells us that if sin is disordered worship, then true worship reorders our longings. That what ends up happening in the midst of suffering and what, what Peter's calling these saints to who are losing their lives for the sake of the gospel is to surrender fully to the cause of Christ in the midst of their lives and and just allow God to be God and not just think that somehow, in some way, God's always only good if they get the outcome they want. I don't know how many of you guys have ever been to those hibachi restaurants. You know those places where they cook in front of you and chop up eggs and they do all this great thing? It's fun, great, entertaining experience. But here's what they do, right? They lay out the ingredients before you and you order your meal 
And then they, they cook it in front of you, which is great, because then you can see all the things that they do, and you get this great food, and it's a great entertaining experience. Peter's a chef this morning, and here are the ingredients that he's going to lay out before us as he begins to, to plan and cook this meal that will satisfy our souls from now until eternity. And the meal is that. How do we internalize or digest, if you will, the truth of God's grace when everything feels like around us is falling apart? So if sin is disordered worship, then true worship reorders our longings. And so now he's going to move into this reality of saying, look, there's some imminence to what's going on. God's got a a bigger plan. And so here's what he says in verse 7. The end of all things is, is at hand. And that was a few thousand years ago. But from God's timing, there's an imminent return of Christ. Like there's something that we should be longing for and anticipating that Jesus is coming back for his people. And we're looking forward to that reality where he's going to take us up and, and culminate all of the things that he has planned. And so here's what he says. Here are the ingredients, okay? And then we're going we're gonna to make the meal together. I'm not a really great chef, but I'm going to try this morning and give you a meal that, G, that Peter has prepared for us. So here are the ingredients. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another and steward God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's what he says. As we wait for the return of Christ, we seek grace to have our lives refined. Like we want to be changed. We know that the Lord is doing something. And so we think about ways in which we can see very poignantly the grace of God developing and changing his people. And so here are the elements, the places that he gives us. And I want to I give you three that I think categorize each of these and then lay out what those look like. The three are how we think, how we love, and how we worship. Again, I want to make sure that you and I know this isn't about behaviors. This is about how we can understand where grace is working, where the fire is burning to burn out those areas of impurity, where grace is showing itself in the most tremendous and amazing of ways. How we think, how we love, and how we worship are aspects of how we surrender to the trust and entrust ourselves to the grace that Jesus has provided for us. How we think. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. I've uh, modernized it a bit. I think he says, don't freak out. I think that's what he's saying. What ends up happening in the context of, of our lives when suffering mounts is we began to grow in a sense of fear. Anxiety begins to enter into our experience. There's a level of uncertainty and and feeling like there's a management that has to take place, that we have to get things right. And so we we start to to freak out. He uses the term sober-minded. So again, what he means is don't be 
drunk-minded. And what he's saying is that often what suffering can do is so disequilibrate us and challenge us and, and move us back and forth where we feel like we can't get our bearings. And so what ends up happening is we double down and we say, all right, I'm going to make my way through this. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do more. And we get drunk with the passion of feeling like we can fix it. And we do everything we can to try and get out of this situation. And we just end up making it about our own abilities rather than God's grace. So what he tells us is, be, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Move to the place of allowing your heart to worship the truth that the creator of the universe has everything well in hand. He knows what he's doing. If he can paint the sky with the stars in the universe and make constellations and, and mark out the heavens with the span of his hand, as Isaiah says, he certainly has your life and mine firmly in hand. He is good, as we're reminded of in unbelievable ways throughout Scripture. He is just that people don't get away with things in the eternal perspective. God judges justly. So our hearts are fanned into worshiping God and reordering our longings. Don't freak out, verse 7 tells us. Second thing, I think, in the way we think is don't be surprised, verse 12 tells us. Why? Because this world is broken, and we have an enemy. The prince of the power of the world is at work in ways to distort, kill, and destroy. We have an adversary that that which would seek to do everything to dismantle the work of Christ and use all the resources at his disposal to do such. We have an enemy. And he operates in a lot of different spheres. He operates in the way we think. He operates in how we feel. He amplifies our longings and tells us that if we don't get what we think we need, that somehow in some way God's not good. Peter's telling us, hey, don't be surprised. This world, not your home. It's not awesome. <laughs> it is a slum compared to the heaven that God has given us. And that's our citizenship. We are aliens and sojourners, the Bible tells us. You are not called to make and take up residence here as your hope of this world fulfilling all of your desires. Because it won't, because it can't. Our home is not in this world. Don't be surprised. And then the final way that I think he tells us to change the way we think, or allow grace to change the way we think, is to not be ashamed. Verses 15 and 16, I think, tell us something very critical. Here's what he says. He says, um, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But in contrast, he says, let him glorify God in that name. So here's what we're saying. We believe that grace is so significant and that changes our lives in, in, in unbelievable ways that as we live close to Jesus and he does the work and the change and the refining like our worship team sang this morning, that there's a changing and a, a, a refining of the impurities inside of our souls. What ends up happening 
is that there's a reality that there's going to be an onslaught of accusations and false accusations and meddling and all of these things that could take place. Don't default to how you behaved in the past and did what you normally do. Move towards the reality that ultimately our only desire in the context of worship is to bring glory to God. My life to be lived in such a way that people see God's glory and see the work that he's doing in my life and they're drawn to the knowledge that Christ saves sin-sick sinners of which I am numero uno. That's critical in terms of thinking and changing how we think. Because if we see ourselves as those in desperate need of grace, it opens up the freedom to handle a world that is captured by sin and worshiping its own desires with the expectation that what we desire most is that they come to faith in Christ too. Because they are crippled and handcuffed and consumed and imprisoned by their own passions. And they might not even know it. We desire for those who don't know Jesus to be rescued because we have to. Changes how we think. Look what he says next. It changes how we love. This is critical because it, I would say, is probably one of the places that is assaulted most when we think about the suffering that we experience. We tend to find ourselves being disqualified or sitting in isolation or not wanting to be around people because it's just too hard or too much. Jesus changes that whole idea through Peter, and here's what he says. Verse 8, fervently, passionately, earnestly love others. When we're so fixated on the grace that we're experiencing in Jesus Christ, we're moved towards others who are suffering and struggling because we realize that the sufficiency of God's grace that we're experiencing now is the same sufficiency that they can experience. Your suffering is not just about you. My suffering is not just about me. And so he says in verse 8, love covers a multitude of sins. I love that. We put up with a lot of crap from one another. That's what he says. We deal with a lot of business. Because when people suffer, we default to the flesh to do what we can do and try and grit our way through it. We handle it sinfully. We behave poorly. And yet we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering as well, who are so consumed with the grace of Jesus Christ that what they're telling one another is, look, Christ loves you in innumerable ways and so do I. Let me take you to him. Let me move you to that direction. So what he says in verse 9 is the next step. You do that by using hospitality. Open your homes. <laughs> Whether they're clean or unclean. Whether you've dusted in six months or not. Open the most intimate parts of your lives to bring other people in to experience the grace that you're experiencing now through Christ. Don't try and do it alone or isolated from the context of the community God has given you. Then verses 10 and 11, use your gifts. When you suffer, don't stop serving. That's what he says. Like, ante up. Step back into the reality of ministry that you are not out of it or somehow because things are so hard that you have to pull away because you just have to wait till you get through it to serve. Jesus is calling through Peter and these suffering Christians to say, look, keep serving in the midst of your struggles because as you serve, what you're displaying is the character and the reliability of the grace that you're experiencing. 
Don't self-disqualify. Don't throw your cards in. Don't tell yourself that unless things get better or until things get better, then I'll step back in. As you suffer, continue to serve. Finally, I just want to finish up with the last four that he gives us in terms of how we worship. How we worship, I think, is a critical starting point, and I I finish with it, but it it actually consumes and captures all of the other ones because where our worship is dictates how we think and how we live. And so he says in verse 7, which I think is really interesting, he tells us that the end of all things, be sober-minded, self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So in the sense of what he's communicating, that there's a reality that continuing to double down and be watchful in our prayers, that suffering doesn't alter our prayer life, it amplifies it. Ask God for things. Talk to him about your struggles. Tell him how you feel. Ask for things to be changed. Communicate to him about how hard things are and what you wish were different. Talk to him like the loving father that he promises to be. And then allow him as your heavenly father and mine to operate in your life in such a way that you can surrender to the perfection of his will. But don't stop asking. Don't stop praying. Don't distort the truth so much that you would say to yourself, well, it doesn't matter if I pray anyway or not. God's going to do what God wants to do. No, no. Pray. Seek. Plead. Ask. Beg. Saints throughout all of the scriptures have done the same and have heard the tremendous wooing of the Father, lovingly guiding them into deeper intimacy with himself. Tells us to do it, verse 13, with joy. Look what he says. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There will be a point in our existence where the objects of our affections will be real and tangible. We will see Jesus one day. We will sing in the throne room with the saints in the universe about how holy God is as we think about doing funerals and and, and grieving over the loved ones that we have lost for those who have had faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what we get to realize, that we get this worship service where we are all singing together the realities and the excellencies of who Christ is. And we grow in the desire to find joy and rejoice and knowing that one day we will receive and experience the longings of our heart, the longings to know Jesus fully, unscripted and without any obstacles of sin. For his glory, he tells us in verses 16 through 18, that's why we worship. We don't worship because we have specific preferences or this is what we like. We worship because it draws us into desiring the glory of God. We want him to be made known. That's the longing. And finally, verse 19, and I'll finish up with this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust their souls. The thought is, let's be fully surrendered followers of Christ where we believe that there's not one intricacy or moment or space in all of the universe throughout all of time that God is not reigning and sovereign over. He is working in incredible ways, drawing us to himself 
And so what we do is we entrust ourselves to the faithful creator. (laughs) Great adjectives, right? He's the author of the universe, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, Hebrews tells us. That he has authored all things and that he is so worthy to be trusted and has never let us down. Not leave us, nor will he forsake us. As believers, I think that's really where we're called to is a realization that part of what happens as we suffer is that what we really worship comes to the surface. And what we realize is that our worship has been a bit disordered. Sin has made its way into our lives. And so as we press into our relationship with Christ, what does he give us? A desire to worship him more fully as the author of all things. And then our longings shift. Our desire is to have our worship reordered on the right things. Jesus is worthy of all of our affections. And he's got this. He judges justly. He loves you enough to draw you close. Let's pray.